It's good to see everybody. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at the summit. So glad you could be with us, uh, particularly as we start this new series called The Signs, Seven Stories of Belief. Um, what we're going to be doing, uh, typically when we go through a book of the Bible, we go through the entire thing, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we're not going to do that with John. We're actually going to just look at seven stories, seven stories of belief, seven signs, seven miracles, where John believes he has this need he can meet in our lives. And by telling us these stories of who Jesus is and what he's done, he'll, he'll point us away from uh, an earthly reality up towards a heavenly truth. Now, Here's what you need to understand, is that anytime you pick up a book, and whether that's uh, picking up this book, the Bible, and turning to the Gospel of John, uh, whether that's picking up a book at your local Barnes & Noble down on 16th Street, uh, you need to understand that the author who writes that book always has a need in mind uh, as they're writing that book. What the author believes is that there's a certain need in your life, and, and, and he or she believes they can meet that need. They can satisfy that need. They can fix that need through the book that they're putting out. So, uh, for example, last week I read this article in Time Magazine by the lady who wrote the Twilight series. I, I, actually, I haven't actually read the books, but I can't even remember the author's name. But I read this article about the lady who read the books, and, and they asked her, well, why did you write the Twilight series? And she said, I believe that they're needed that the American public needed a book, a book about true love and how it can change somebody's life. And so she wrote this book, Twilight, where you know, a, a teenager falls in love with a 104-year-old vampire and uh, true love happens, right? True love happens. And it, and it so resonated with the American public that now if you go down to the, the 16th Street Barnes and Noble, what you'll see is multiple, multiple sections uh, of books underneath the category of teen fiction paranormal romance um, that attracts both teenagers and middle-aged adults who are pretending to buy those books for their teenage children, right? Um, same thing for the lady who wrote uh, the Hunger Games. She, you know, she wrote The Hunger Games, and I just read an article last week where she was interviewed, asked, why, why, did, you decide to, why did you decide to write The Hunger Games? She said, I, I believed that American teenagers needed a story about the dangers of war, the, the dangers of media biases, uh, the dangers of politics, and so she wrote her stories. And now teenagers everywhere in the United States are psyched to go try and kill each other uh, in the woods. Am I right? For anybody who's read those books, it uh, makes me more psyched, not less. Uh, anytime, anytime anyone writes a book, they, they have a, a, a need in mind that they're trying to address. And that's not only true... Uh, today in contemporary fiction, but, it, but it's true even for John as he's writing this book thousands of years ago, the very true story of who Jesus is and, and what he's done and what that means for our lives. Jesus has, or John has a very real need in mind, and in fact, he feels so compelled, so driven by this need that he comes right out and says it actually later in his book. You just need to be aware of it. In John chapter 20, towards the end, he says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What John is coming is he's laying out the need from the very beginning. He's saying, look, Jesus did a lot of other stuff. He did, he did a lot of other signs. But here's what you need to know. Is I've written what I've written because I need to address your greatest need. And I believe that your greatest need is one of belief. What John is saying is your greatest need in mind is to believe. To believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that by believing, we may have life in his 
name. Now, before we jump into the text, let's, let's just be honest for a second and say, for all of you this past week, for all of you, I know this. I know that all of you felt some sort of pressing need. Am I right? You felt some sort of pressing need. And my guess is no matter what you felt last week, you probably didn't feel like your greatest need is what John is telling you is your greatest need, right? One of belief. Now, for some of you last week, you probably felt like you had a romantic need, right? If you could just meet somebody or you have met somebody, but you're waiting for that somebody to recognize you're their somebody. And if that somebody could pick up on your subtle advances through, you know, the the, the sort of cryptic things you're posting on Facebook, the, the music lyrics that you're posting on Facebook, and that somebody could recognize you're there, somebody, then you could be somebody together. And because of that, you two could live happily ever, then your greatest need would be met. Or others of you, you felt like your greatest need last week was a financial need. You're stressed out. If I could just get a better job, get a job, get more hours, get a little bit of bump up in pay. If you, know, you could jump, drop enough hints to your parents that you're not going to be able to pay rent in February, maybe they'll pay rent in February. And you know, that $500, $600 uh, break right there will relieve some of the press, stress and the pressure. What, what you felt was if if I could just get a little bit of the financial need taken care of, then everything would be fine. Or others of you felt like your greatest need last week was a schedule need, right? Your life is crazy. Your spouse's life is crazy. Your kids' lives are crazy. All of you are overcommitted. And you just say, like, if I could just get you know, like a vacation or a week or a day or an hour or like 15 minutes just to breathe and to wrap my mind around my life and my schedule, then everything would be fine. The common denominator in the room is that all week, last week, we felt the weight of needs on our lives. And probably for all of us, we didn't feel like our most important need is what John is saying is our most important need, our need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing we may have life in his name. And so I'm not trying to come down on you. I'm just saying, let's just be honest about that on the front end. Let's just acknowledge that we have to be shaken from our lesser desires to be pointed up to a, a heavenly reality. And that's exactly the point, John. John that's the, exactly the reason John is going to tell us the story he's going to tell us uh, this week in the coming six weeks about the signs that Jesus performs. Now, tonight, we're going to look at the first sign performed by Jesus. Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. Okay, John? Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding. And, and I'll just be honest, um, of all the signs we're going to look at, this is probably the least spectacular, okay? Uh, all week, I was kind of like, I kind of wish you had done something a little more climactic to kick off the series with, right? Because later, uh, Jesus is going to heal children. He's going to walk on water. He's going to raise a man from the dead, the type of stuff that's really great for kicking off new teaching series. But, but Jesus, he does something that I'm pretty sure I saw a magician do one time at a kid's birthday party, right? Like turn water into wine. Um, you know, a little optical illusion, a little sleight of hand. It's impressive. I probably couldn't do it, but but couldn't you have done something a little bit more climactic, Jesus, to get us started? And here's what we're going to see as we look at this story. It's an incredible story that does shake us, shake us from our lesser desires, points us up to a heavenly reality, and challenges us not just with our need to believe, but it is for our joy to believe as well. It is for our good, for our joy to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and by believing we may have life, true life in his name. And so we're going we're gonna to jump into the text now, uh, look at the story of the wedding. We're going to see this story unfold in three simple acts, okay? We're going to walk through the story in three simple acts. The first is the problem then the miracle, and then, the, uh, then the, re the response, okay? So the problem, then we're going to see the miracle, and then the response. Three simple acts we'll walk through. In order, we'll start with the problem. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 2. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So Jesus, his disciples, his mom, they show up to this wedding and they get to the wedding and the entire town is at this wedding. It was probably a, a friend or a relative, somebody close to them since their entire circle of friends were there. And at the wedding, they run out of wine. That's, that's the problem. They run out of wine. Now, um, our church is fairly young and so that means that uh, many of you have planned a wedding recently. You are planning a wedding. You soon will be planning a wedding. And uh, you know that planning a wedding is very stressful, right? Like when I talk about planning a wedding, when I talk about even weddings in general, all that pops into your mind is stress, right? Anybody, anybody experience this? Caterers here, you're having a wedding, they jack up the prices. Parents who at one point were completely sane have gone completely crazy. Like moms are just going berserk about flavors of wedding cakes. Um, you've got friends who are normally pretty easy to get along with almost killing one another about the color of what sort of shade of pink are you going to have on the bridesmaid's dress, okay? Um, Weddings tend to lead to people going crazy. They tend to be very stressful. Uh, But here's what you need to know is that back then, uh, no matter how stressful your wedding planning was uh, recently or is right now, weddings back then were way crazier. They were way more stressful, way more stressful. And here's the reason why. Is that a wedding back then, it was more than an event, it was more than a party, it was a reflection. It was a reflection. It was a reflection on that groom's capacity to take care of that bride and for them to be able to live happily ever after. They would throw this huge party, it would usually go about a week, the entire town would be invited, all friends and family, and the groom's capacity to take care of the logistics, to make sure everybody's well fed, well taken care of, reflected his ability to take care of this bride for life. And so here's the thing. I know that if somebody came up to you at your wedding and said, you know, hey, we ran out of wine, we need more wine, you would say, here's what I would say, I would say, look, you leech, um, I, I fed you, I provided drink for you, I provided dancing and a DJ for you, like, I think you'll be okay without another drink. Like, you can go home and buy your own drink. You didn't pay for anything, so I think it'll be fine right? That's the way many of you would respond as well. Uh, but it wasn't like that uh, it, at this wedding. This, the, the running out of wine was a reflection of the fact that the groom was not ready to take care of the bride, that their wedding was a reflection, the doomed wedding was a reflection of a doomed marriage. Their inability to take care of the logistics reflected the fact that how are you going to get a marriage right when you couldn't even get a wedding right? And the shame of this would haunt them for some time to come. Now, With all that said, even though this is a major problem, let me just ask you, do you really feel like this is the problem that attracts the attention of the Son of God? Like all week, I'm I'm doing my homework and I'm learning about weddings and I'm just like, I'm just gonna be honest, this just doesn't seem worth Jesus' attention. I mean, because this wedding, it was probably a couple of Jewish teenagers and they probably just miscalculated the guest list. They did the math wrong. Too many people showed up. You know, maybe you know, they didn't come back with all the RSVPs. I'm not sure what the situation was. They miscalculated the guest list. And then it's brought to the attention of the Son of God to redeem and to restore. I mean, does it really seem like it's worth his attention? You know, 
all week as I was thinking about this, I, I actually thought back on my childhood and uh, all the episodes of Superman I watched growing up. Were any of you Superman fans growing up? I was a huge Superman fan growing up. I even had uh, Superman PJs. I had a full-length cape. I would get it caught indoors as I would go running around my house pretending to fly. And it was tremendously dangerous, and my mom had to take it away. And every episode of Superman was largely the same, right? I mean, some sort of life-altering crisis was taking place. You know, um, a school bus full of children was about to be hit by a train and then, you know, it'd spill into a lake full of child-eating gators. And then some sort of bystander would be by watching all of this unfolding and he would cry out, this looks like a job for Superman, right? This looks like a job for Superman. And then what, what, what would Superman do? He would, you know, run into a phone booth and he would change into his tights and he would fly across, uh, you know, the earth, and then he would catch the bus, and he would put, and everybody would cheer, and it would be incredible. And, and, and again and again and again, as a child, I couldn't get enough. It was, it was incredible, even though it was the same story again and again and again. Now, you know what I never saw growing up? I never saw somebody cry out, this looks like a job for Superman, over an issue that was kind of trivial. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I understand a school bus full of children that are about to die, but you know, you never saw an episode where two friends were at a coffee shop and they were kind of anxious because there's been some distance between them and a third friend and there's some anxiety growing about that and they've forgiven and, you know, they've apologized but they haven't really accepted the apology and what's going on. And, and pretty soon after hours of trying to wrap their minds around what they're going to do, somebody cries out, this looks like a job for Superman. And then Superman jumps into the telephone booth, changes into his tights, flies across the sky, shows up. He's like, well, here's exactly what you need to do. There's no episode like that, right? Because that's not very entertaining. And even if they did have an episode like that, don't you imagine Superman showing up and everybody being like, why did you call out for Superman? I mean, he's got a lot better things to do with his time. He's trying to you know, save school buses full of children from dying, not, not worrying about your anxiety problem with your friends, okay? All week, that's, that's kind of the way I felt with Jesus here. Like, running out of wine for the Son of God is kind of like going to Superman and being like, I've got a splinter. Could you take care of this? It kind of hurts. I mean, why would you bother Superman when he could be out saving the world? Why would you bother Jesus with this when he could be out raising the dead, walking on water, healing the sick, feeding the hungry? You know what I realized this week? Is I tend to think that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, cares exclusively about some of my problems and not all of them. I, I tend to think that God is concerned with the major big things of my life, the, the life-altering crises, uh, but the smaller stuff he just leaves to me to have to deal with. I, I tend to think that if a problem is trivial and not that big of a deal and it causes a little bit of anxiety and worry, that's on me. If it's life-altering, I bring it to him, but, but he's like, sorry, I've only got time for some of your problems, not all of them. Only bring to me the most major problems. You ever felt like that? You, you ever felt like, God cares only about part of your life and not the entirety of it. Yeah, like, if you got diagnosed with a life-altering illness, well, I mean, that's the type of thing to bring to a prayer group, and that's the type of thing to request prayers for on Twitter, and that's the type of thing to pray regularly for to, to God to, to heal and restore. But, but if it's something, you know, a diagnosis that's, that's not as exciting, not as life-altering, not as crisis-inducing, if it's just something, something sort of chronic and small, I mean, he doesn't really care because he's only there for the big and not the small. You ever felt like that maybe with your kids before? It's like, you know, some of you 
or observing your kids grow up and they're toddlers now and you're starting to see glimpses of what their personalities will be like. And if they demonstrated qualities that you're like, I'm pretty sure that kid is going to end up being an axe murderer or a sociopath. You'd be like, okay, well, like, that's something that God's concerned about. That's a big deal. That's crisis-inducing. That's the type of thing that we need to have God brought. But, but, but if he or she's demonstrating just kind of more subtle behaviors of selfishness and pride, the type of behaviors that will hinder their relationship with Jesus, the type of behaviors that will hinder their relationship with the people around them and their pride, I mean, that's on you to worry out oh, as a parent. I mean, God, God only has time for the big and not the small. You ever felt like that, that, that God cares exclusively about the major issues of your life, but he cares nothing of the small? You know what I love about this story? Is that it starts off with a couple of Jewish teenagers miscalculating their guest list and they run out of wine. And it's a big deal, but it's not the type of big deal that you would typically think would draw the attention of Jesus. And they bring the problem to Jesus. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't scoff. He doesn't mock. He rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. He says, okay, I'm going to get involved. And what he's proclaiming in that moment is there is no area of our lives that is too small, inconsequential, or insignificant to draw his attention, his grace, his redemption, his healing. There is no area. He cares not just about part of our lives, but all of them. Not just about the super spiritual, crisis-inducing areas of what church am I going to go to, and where am I going to live, and what job am I going to have, and am I going to be homeless or not? No, he doesn't. He cares about that. But he also cares about, about the seemingly insignificant, trivi- trivial, minutia, the problems that you face, the needs that you faced last week that seemed so insignificant that you didn't think once to bring it to him in prayer because you thought it wasn't worth his attention whatsoever. It's those problems exactly that Jesus is proclaiming in this moment. I will not scoff. I will not mock. I will extend my blessing. I will extend my healing. That is an area of your life you were meant to believe and I will roll up my sleeves and I will get to work so that you might believe. So that's the problem. The problem is they run out of wine. And sure, it's it's kind of a big problem, but it's not a huge problem. But Jesus says, I will get involved anyways. And here's what Jesus does. Jesus comes and he performs a miracle in response. He performs a miracle in response. And we see the miracle starting in verse six. We'll look at verses six through eight. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding... 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now, this is a story that probably, you know, I I don't know everybody here. There's many faces I've never seen before. So um, there's some of you who probably haven't been in church uh, in a very long time. But even though you haven't been in church for a very long time, you're still somewhat familiar about the story of Jesus turning uh, water into wine. You, you, know, you, you probably largely think, I've got this. I've heard this. I've understood this. Um, but, but here's what I would encourage you to do, is to look at the text with some fresh eyes and see it's not just important that Jesus turns water into wine, but how, how Jesus goes about turning water into wine. Look again at verse 6. Put on your... Uh, your, your Detective glasses, that's kind of corny. And uh, pay, pay close attention. Uh, verse six, L- look at how he goes about doing this. Verse six, now there were six stone, wa- uh, six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. 
And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now, what you need to know is it's bizarre. It is bizarre the way Jesus goes about doing this. Because um, all my life, I tended to think that at this party, they run out of wine. And they carry the pitchers of water, or the pitchers of wine to Jesus. And they say they're empty. They ran out. And he goes, shazam. And uh, all of a sudden, there's wine right? In the pictures, it's almost like a restaurant type of scene, like there wasn't iced tea and then there is iced tea, or there wasn't, you know, wine. Now there is uh, wine. But if you notice in verse six, what did Jesus use? He used the jars that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, these were really unlikely jars to use. Let me give you a little background. Uh, The Jews believed back then that God is good and he is holy, and we are not. We're, We're not good and we're not holy. And even the smallest sin, even the smallest violation of God's law that he puts upon our lives leads to us being separated from God. And in recognition of this, the Jews, anytime they were preparing to enter into the presence of God, they would cleanse themselves. So before they would go into the temple, they would go to these stone jars and they would totally cut water and they would wash themselves and they would enter into the presence of God. Probably the same thing was happening at a wedding. You would, it was a very spiritual affair, and because of that, there would be these stone jars. Uh, they would wash themselves, and they would go into it. And so this is a little bit bizarre, uh, because this would be something similar to if you were throwing a party, and uh, somebody came to you and they said, oh, we're out of water, can I get a refill? And you said, yeah, we got plenty of water. Uh, the bathroom is the second door on the right. Just go in there, fill up the tub. There's plenty of water. There's plenty of water. If you do that, you're not going to have any more parties, but you're not going to have any more friends. Am I right? And so it's weird that what Jesus does here is he not just turns water into wine, he turns the water of purification. He turns bath water into wine. He does this in such a bizarre, attention-grabbing way that he's trying to communicate a larger point. Now, before we talk about what that point is, we've got to talk about you understanding the Jewish craving for cleansing. Okay, we've got to have a conversation about that. Uh, because here's the thing, when you hear about people going to a wedding and then, you know, or even a church service and cleansing themselves before going into that church service, that's, that's not something we typically do in the United States. Am I right? I mean, if you, if you cleanse yourself before coming here tonight, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to enter into the presence of a holy, righteous God and I'm unholy and he's holy and I got to cleanse myself. No, I mean, the only reason you cleanse yourself before coming in this room tonight is because you were in the mountains this weekend and you stank, right? Like a couple hours ago, you stank, And you didn't want the people around you to know that you stank, so you cleanse yourself. There was no spiritual reason behind it. And so it seems bizarre, right? It seems like this weird religious ritual that is antiquated and unnecessary, and why would we do that? Here's the deal, is that all of us in this room, no matter what we believe about who God is, no matter our religious beliefs or backgrounds, all of us in this room crave cleansing. We do. All of us, all of us in this room crave a cleansing. In fact, just this week, I was reading an article in the New York Times about a lady uh, who wrote very candidly about an affair that she had. She wrote very candidly about an affair, and she said the most uh, surprising aspect of that journey of her having an affair was that she thought she wouldn't feel bad about it whatsoever. She said, you know, in American culture, it's anything goes, do what you got to do to make you happy, no regrets. And she said, That was not true for her whatsoever. That what weighed down on her was this feeling of shame, guilt, and filth. In fact, she said that she felt so tangibly filthy that when she would leave her lover's home, she would have to take a shower before re-engaging her family just in some small way to to have this feeling of being made clean. 
Have you craved that? That feeling of desiring to be made clean? Maybe not in such a significant way as that, but, but here's the deal, is all of us in this room in some small way crave to be made clean. I mean, even recently, Oprah Winfrey launched something called the 21-Day Soul Cleanse. The soul cleanse. And she said that what happens is we make mad mistakes and we date people we shouldn't have dated and we uh, you know, connect to people we shouldn't have connected and we say things we shouldn't have said and we do things we shouldn't have done and that creates a spiritual darkness within us that has to be purged, has to be clean. And so here's a 21-day guide in order to be made clean. We all crave some sort of spiritual cleansing. You felt that? The craving to get over somebody that you shouldn't have dated? The craving to be made new? when you made mistakes in the past that you thought would haunt you for the rest of your life. Here's what I'm willing to bet is if you actually get alone, you actually self-reflect, you actually think about the things that you've done with and to those you care about the most, there are moments where such a tremendous twinge of shame arises within your heart when you meditate on some of the things that you've done that you can't think about it any longer. You just, have, you just have to change subjects in your mind. You, you ever felt what that's like? The craving to be cleansed, the desire to start fresh, to start anew. Everybody wants it. Now hold that in your mind. Because what is Jesus doing here? At a Jewish wedding, he turns not just water into wine, but the water of purification into wine. And if you remember, at the end of Jesus' life, what we'll celebrate through taking the communion is that Jesus gathers together his closest friends and his closest followers, and he breaks bread, and he pours out wine. And as he's pouring out that wine, he says, this is the blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood that will cleanse you, forgive you, and reconcile you back to God. My blood will be poured out like wine so that you might be made clean. And so what's happening in this moment where Jesus at a Jewish wedding is turning the water of purification into wine? Well, he knows that for millennia, people have been asking the question that we're still asking today. How is somebody made clean? How does somebody overcome their past? How does it happen? Back then, what do they do? They ceremonially, symbolically wash themselves, cleanse themselves. What do we do today? We don't ceremonially wash ourselves. We say we don't need washing. I'm a good person. I'm a talented person. I'm an educated person. I'm a wealthy person. I'm a, I'm a religious person. I'm a socially involved person. And Jesus knows the silliness of it all. Isn't it silly to think you can cleanse your own soul? I mean, you can wash your car, you can wash dishes, you can wash clothes. How do you wash your own soul? And Jesus, at this Jewish wedding, turns the water of purification into wine and says, you used to symbolically cleanse yourself with water. Now you will have the opportunity to be cleansed in reality by the spilling of my blood like Wine. What you have craved for millennia but have been unable to do for yourself to wash your own soul, I will now do for you what you could not do for yourself by the, sp- by the spilling, by the pouring out of my blood. And what you see transpire in this moment is an earthly sign that points to a heavenly reality that Jesus at this wedding turns water into wine. And for those who receive the wine, the party continues for days on end. 
And the heavenly reality is that Jesus' blood will be poured out like wine. And for those men and women who believe and receive it, the party of life will continue as well as we are united to God as a bride is to her groom. And here's Jesus at this wedding proclaiming, you were unable to take care of your bride, but I will take care of mine, even if it costs me my own life. Even from this wedding, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel, him in our place, pouring out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins so that we might be redeemed and reconciled and rescued back to our God. This is the miracle that Jesus performs. What I love is not only is there a problem, not only is there a miracle, but then there's a response. There's a response. There's a response that that people make back to Jesus. Everybody at the wedding has some sort of response. And what it reminds me of is when I was a little kid and uh, I would go down to the river. I lived two miles away from the James River in Virginia growing up. We'd go down to the river. And uh, some of you are men, so you remember when you were a little boy. What's what's a a little boy's God-given mission when he goes down to a body of water? to find the biggest rock he can and to drop it in there, right? I mean, that's, that's just kind of the God, it's written on our DNA. I'm going to make the biggest splash I can possibly make with this rock. And that's kind of what happens in this story is, is Jesus comes and he drops a boulder in the middle of this wedding and everybody around is impacted by the waves. Everybody around is. They can't help but be changed when they encounter the living God. And what I want you to see is the response of four different people, four different types of people uh, to what Jesus did, and specifically how their response is meant to challenge us and how we're meant to respond as well. Now, we're first going to look at the master of the feast. The master of the feast. Look at verse 9. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast was just kind of like a master of ceremonies. He responds by rejoicing. He rejoices. And I love the way he tells it too. He says, typically, the way this works at weddings is they bring out the good wine, everybody gets drunk, and then they bring out the bad wine because nobody cares at that point if it's good wine or it's bad wine. Um, I know in Denver, we're more of a beer culture, less of a wine culture. So this would be like, typically you lead at weddings with the good craft beer, you know, the microbrew, and then people bring out the PBR afterwards. Uh, You've done the exact opposite. Now, what, what the master of the feast is advocating for here is not drunkenness, but he is recognizing, he is rejoicing over the greater and better provision of Jesus. He's saying, you have saved the best for last, and I rejoice over that. Why does that matter? Why, why does that matter? You know, you know why it matters? Is that for some of you in this room, When you think of Christianity, either you consider yourself a Christian or you're exploring Christianity, what you think of in this faith is you have to obey. It's a grind. Suck it up. It's grueling. You really wish you could live some other way, but, but, but if you really want to go to heaven one day, well, you just got to suck it up, jump into the grind, and wait 30, 40, 50 years until you die, and then you hope that it's worth it. 
Some of you think of Christianity as nothing more than a list of religious rules that you are obligated to obey, and it will be a tremendous burden for you to obey them. And here's Jesus, totally blowing up that notion and that understanding of the faith that follows him, saying it is for your good and for your joy to believe and to follow me. Here he is at a wedding, turning water into wine, so the party continues and it explodes. The master of the feast recognizes and rejoices it, and we are meant to rejoice in response to his work as well. It is not a duty, it is not a burden, it is not an obligation, it is for our joy to believe. Not only does the master of the feast rejoice, but but the groom, look look at the groom. Well, he he gets the news and he doesn't say anything in response, right? So we we don't know exactly what he did, but, but, but most people believe that the groom, he just received it, right? So the, so the master of the feast comes to him and says, you saved the best wine for last. And he's like, heck yeah, we did. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's great. Well, he, he just simply receives the work of Jesus. Now, this seems a little disingenuous on the front end, right? You're, you're taking credit for something that you didn't do. But this is the entire heart of the Christian faith. Don't you understand that what Christianity boils down to is not what you do for God. It's merely receiving the work of God that's been done on your behalf. If you want to start a relationship with Jesus, you don't bring to him, look what I quit doing, look what I started doing, look at the church I joined, look how I got baptized. It's works, it's meaningless. It can't get you back to God. But what you come with is an empty cup claiming nothing but the blood of Christ spilled on your behalf. It begins with receiving, receiving, receiving what you could not do for yourself, the payment for your sins. And here's the challenge to you and I in this room to have our entire faith built around not what we can do for God, but first receiving what he chose to do for us by Christ on the cross, spilling out his blood like wine. Not only do we see rejoicing and receiving, look at Mary. Um, Now, Mary's back in verses three through five. This is a really bizarre interchange. My mom probably would have killed me if I talked to her like this. And, uh, is this interchange, verse three, says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? It was actually a fairly respectful term. He wasn't being a jerk. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, what you see with Mary is not only rejoicing, receiving, but also obeying, also obeying. What happens in verse three is that Mary approaches Jesus as her son and she is rebuked. What happens in verse five is Mary approaches Jesus as her savior and as her Lord and her faith is rewarded. Her faith is honored. She doesn't even know what it is that he's gonna do, but but what does she say? Do whatever he tells you to do. Many of us bristle at this, right? Many of us bristle at the obedience aspect of our faith. And what we see is that if we truly rejoice over the provision Jesus will make for us at the cross, if we receive it and it really does reconcile us back to God, then obedience becomes not a burden, but a joy that we look to with Jesus. We don't, we don't come to him and, and we're not patronizing, right? We don't, we don't come and say, well, oh, cute little Jesus, little Jesus, you, you think you should tell me how to, to run my life. Isn't that so sweet, cute little Jesus? No, 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 no. You approach Jesus with bended knee as your Savior and as your Lord and say, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. 
Wherever you call me to go, I will go. Whatever you call me to give, I will give. Whatever you call me to give up, I will give up. Whatever you call me to start doing, I will start doing. Because I know it is for my joy to not just believe you, but to follow you and to obey you as well. Mary obeys. Fourth and finally, what you see at the very end of this passage is the disciples. And in verse 11, we see this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The disciples believe. The disciples believe. What we see is John's told us that our greatest need is one of belief. And what he's showing us are some people in this story actually realizing and seizing their greatest need. They believe. They believe you. So, okay, well, what does that entail? He doesn't go into much more detail. Don't you understand the waves that have impacted the other people of the party are meant to be a glimpse into what the life of belief is? What do you do? You rejoice. You rejoice over the fact that God would love you so much that he would have your, his son die in your place. You receive it. You, you lay down this notion that you're a good person. You lay down this notion that you're a religious enough person. You lay down this notion that you're a tolerant enough person for God. And you say, nothing do I claim that is good inside me, I only claim the blood of Christ. I I receive it. I I apply it to my life. And you obey. You obey. If you know that God would love you that much, that you know that the rules he puts on your life is for your good and for your joy, and you would start living your life where you follow him, not just as Savior, as Lord. That's what John is concluding with here. He's showing you disciples who have believed what you're seeing as a party full of people who are giving you the glimpse into the incredible life of believe. And here's the deal as we close. The deal is that just as Jesus dropped a boulder into a Middle Eastern wedding 2,000 years ago, uh, Jesus does the exact same thing in churches here today. He, he does it tonight when, when we talk about stories of what he's done and, and what he means to do in our lives. And so here's what we want to do, give you a chance to do. We want to give you the opportunity to respond to what Jesus first did for you, right? It's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus did for you. But, but you need to respond in some way. And we just saw a glimpse into the sort of response there should be. And we're going to give you an opportunity to respond through the partaking of communion. Now, uh, communion is the celebration of what we talked about earlier. When Jesus, he's getting ready to go to the cross and he breaks bread and he pours out wine. And he says, this reflects, this symbolizes my body being broken, my blood being poured out so that you might be forgiven, redeemed, reconciled back to God. He said, do this, partake of this in remembrance of me. And so our church, that's why we celebrate communion. We do this so in remembrance and response to what Jesus has done. Now, let me talk to three different types of people in the room and, and how you can potentially respond tonight. Let me, let me talk to those of you here uh, who need to respond to Jesus with belief, real belief. That, that's a picture of belief for the first time in your life, okay? So, so not being born in your faith, uh, not sort of absorbing your faith because you're in the United but, but actually taking ownership of it and believing yourself. Tonight is a great opportunity for you to uh, make that decision to really believe in Jesus, to rejoice, to receive, and to believe, to make that your own for the very first time. And so I challenge you to, to partake of communion and let that be the first step, the action step, your response to saying, I believe, I receive, I will obey. Uh, others of you in this room, you've made that decision years ago. And here's the deal, is that, is that the gospel, what, what Jesus has done for you, is not just for the day you were saved, it's for every single aspect of your life. And so you respond and you celebrate as well. You respond with the same desperation as the day when you first believed, and you partake as well.
Others of you, there's a lot of new faces. Some of you are checking out church for the first time in a long time. And uh, you're just trying to make sense of what you believe right now. Okay? And we are so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're checking out what we're doing. We're, we're so glad that you're exploring uh, your faith. Um, but, but you probably don't feel ready to participate. Let, let me just tell you, that's totally fine. We're glad you're here. We hope you come back next week. Just sit there. Nobody will judge you. But let me just challenge you. Maybe even for the next five minutes as people are responding, uh, maybe be just a little bit self-reflective, okay? In a culture and in a city where we're distracted by so many good things, maybe for the next five minutes is is your opportunity to be honestly self-reflective on where you stand with God and where you stand in terms of receiving what Jesus has done on your behalf. And maybe, maybe even just two and a half minutes into that five minutes, What you'll recognize is you don't have all the answers. What you'll recognize is you don't even know all the questions you should ask yet. But what you recognize is, is it's time for me to believe, receive, and obey Jesus. And if that's so, I encourage you to get up and to participate as well. I'm going to pray as we close. We'll respond with communion, and uh, then we'll respond through baptisms, and uh, it'll be a great night to, to celebrate and rejoice over what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that 2,000 years ago, you stepped into a wedding, turned water into wine, and turned the world upside down. And God, we thank you that you ultimately were pointing forward to the day where your hour would come, where your blood would be poured out like wine so that we might be able to believe and receive and obey you. And so God, I pray that we would rightly respond. I pray for the Christian in the room uh, who... I pray will humble themselves and cherish the work of the gospel as much today as the day when they discovered it anew. I pray for the person who's on the edge of maybe becoming a Christian, that you would give them the courage and the comfort to know this is a step that they should take. And there are many unknowns, there are many frightening things, um, but you are a good and gracious father uh, who takes us by the hand and walks us through this journey of faith. I pray for those who are here uh, for the first time or or have just been exploring what we're doing and and more importantly, exploring who you are. And uh, I pray that you would reveal yourself to to them. And um, even if tonight's not the night that they make a decision, that you would continue to draw and pursue them. And we pray this uh, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.